about the impression you created in New York when you walked down the aisles of that name, Kiss Me Kate, wearing a white sweater that grabbed everyone's eyes away from the stage. <laughs> yes, I was there. I heard people say, there goes Hollywood. They said, Ted, it was an accident. I just got off the plane. I wasn't trying to attract attention. Really, I wasn't. Besides, it was a yellow sweater. Oh. <laughs> it was? I've never done anything like that for publicity, if that's what you mean. No, it isn't. Uh, but that's not good publicity. What concerns me as your friend is you won't have it. May I have the floor? You'll take it anyway. <laughs> In the first place, this business about uh, temperament, blowing up. I never have thrown any scenes or done anything to interfere with the making of a picture. And the nine pictures I've worked on, I've only had two arguments. And one of them was with a director who insisted that I play a sexy scene a la Mae West. And all I did was insist that I should play it a la me. There's argument on your side. And it's for production schedules. The only time I ever held up work was once when I was crying, on the lunch hour, on my own time. And so they were all ten minutes late because they had to fix my makeup. Crying? You? Sure. I don't even remember what it was now, but I'm not going to apologize for being a little intense and, or for taking my work seriously. That's what an actress does, doesn't she? She deals in human emotions? Of course, of course. But if you're this cooperative, I mean, if that's all the trouble you've ever caused anybody, then why this reputation of being a screwball? Well, maybe because I am one. <laughs> you're listening to episode 83, part 6 of the conclusion of the Sassmouth Dame podcast series, on Luella and Hedda. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. During the Second World War, Hedda Hopper's image was so well known that she appeared in Nazi propaganda, pictured in one of her famous outlandish hats, which served as evidence for American decadence. Hedda received more favorable press coverage than Luella Parsons throughout the 1940s. Hedda Hopper went from 5 million daily readers to 35 million, over the span of her career in celebrity gossip. Where once she lived in a basement hovel and worried about paying her son's tuition, by 1947, she made $200,000 a year, and by 1960, had a salary was $250,000 a year. She continued to work in film along with radio and made several lecture tours. If not for Hedda Hopper's zeal for conservative politics, she would have a much different legacy today. I'm routinely struck by how often women engage with the misogynist characterizations of Hedda as a shrew, a battle axe, and a harpy. The persecution of the Hollywood Ten and those with left-wing politics was a disgrace, but there are many sources who had far more institutional power to shape those events than Hedda Hopper. The moguls held up in the Waldorf um, Hotel and ended contracts. Senators foamed at the mouth in Washington, and plenty of Hollywood luminaries supported the HUAC hearings and ridding Hollywood of Reds. Gary Cooper, John Wayne, Leo McCary, Cecil B. DeMille, Barbara Stanwyck, Ginger Rogers, and Irene Dunn are among the stars who supported the hearings. Hedda's views were as messy and complicated as anyone else on the list of Hollywood supporters of the blacklist. Hedda's legacy as an actor and a writer shouldn't be eclipsed by that Cold War hysteria. When we last left Hedda in 1943, she was riding high on a series of exclusives, scoops she had caught before Luella Parsons. 
In the press, their rivalry was depicted as a popularity contest where glamorous Hedda won over her dowdy competition. In May 1944, high drama occurred exactly where you would hope to find it, at a Lily Dashay hat show. The rivalry between Luella and Hedda took center stage. During the hat show, full of A-listers, Hedda entered and took a seat at a table next to publicist Maddie Ettinger. Luella had been seated at the same table. She created a stir among the crowd when Luella got up from the table and moved across the room in a huff. Hedda apologized to Maggie, saying, I'm terribly sorry, I'll move. Maggie replied, you will not. This is silly. I'll get her. Remember that Maggie Ettinger was Luella's cousin. Maggie went over to talk to Luella, who would not budge. Hedda recalled the incident in her memoir. She said, by that time, the spectators, Loretta Young, Mary Pickford, Marion Davies, Claudette Colbert, and a hundred others, were paying more attention to us than to Lily's hats. Hedda later learned, after the incident was reported in the press, that Luella had objected because Hedda hadn't asked permission before she sat down at the table, which had been reserved for Lorena Danker, a woman married at the time to a rich businessman, and who incidentally would later marry Louis B. Mayer. Powerful men like Mayer thought that Hedda would be easy to manipulate and provide studio heads with a line of defense against Luella Parsons. Louis Mayer had given her access to MGM stars as once Luella Parsons had, before Hearst moved his film company to Warner Brothers. The special attention that Luella once gave to MGM stars in her column was then lavished on the stars and Warners. Mayer soon learned that Hedda was less predictable than Luella because Hedda was ruled only by her own opinion and principles. She didn't change her politics to suit her publisher or the hands that fed her the tips. Hedda Hopper was known for ruthless takedowns in her column, yet she also used it to help boost a career, especially when it came to women whom she knew worked hard and deserved a break. From nearly the beginning of her writing career until in the late 1930s until she finished in the 1960s, Hedda campaigned for women in Hollywood. She wrote, Hollywood is unfair to women and I'm out to prove it. She argued against the emphasis on weight loss, where struggling actresses felt they had to reduce to the point of emaciation. Hedda consistently argued for more women as screenwriters, producers, and directors. Joan Crawford noted that Hedda was the only columnist she knew who would devote an entire article to praising a good performance or picture. Maybe because Hedda acted for so many years in front of the camera, she understood the craft so well and how much it meant. The campaign for Joan Crawford's Oscar for Mildred Pierce began in Hedda's column. Hedda was the first member of the press to plant the seed. In her memoir, Hedda notes that her dressing room used to be right next door to Jones and MGM. They worked together on Our Blushing Brides and I Live My Life and The Women. Hedda praised Jones' work ethic and self-improvement regimen in her memoir. Joan, in turn, numbered Hedda in the group consistent among her lifelong friends. 
inner column early during the production of Mildred Pierce. Hedda wrote, insiders say that Joan Crawford is delivering such a terrific performance in Mildred Pierce that she's a cinch for the Academy Award. Gypsy Rose Lee recalled that after she gave birth to her son Eric, when she wasn't married, by the way, Hedda was the first person to ring her, send flowers, and a nice note. She said that Hedda knew how much time he had to take off of show business to have a baby and how much a little encouragement meant to a new mother. Gypsy observed that Hedda often gave her a boost in her column just when she really needed it. While Luella Parsons seemed to have a grudge against the method actors for their insufficient respect for Hollywood tradition, Hedda Hopper championed the careers of James Dean and Shelley Winters. But Hedda could also devote a whole column to shredding a picture, or a performance, or any front office decision that she didn't agree with. When studio executives complained, why do we give her the material and then have her turn around and slug us with it? Hedda explained her approach to celebrity journalism. I can only do the job I try and do in Hollywood by being honest. After all, I haven't been brought up in the Hollywood School of Journalism. I've never learned its rules. So therefore, when I have an opinion, I express it, no matter if I lose face or friends doing it. Hedda meant what she said. It was not unusual for her to choose her column over her friends, or rather she didn't spare her friends from an attack if she thought there was a good story in it. For example, Rosalind Russell, one of Hedda's friends, was the subject of a salty piece in one of her columns. Hedda had printed an item that accused Rosalind Russell of using Sister Kenny for publicity that Roz never really intended to play her life story on film. The truth is that Roz spent six years trying to get the Sister Kenny story adapted to the big screen. After she had met the Australian nurse, who wasn't a nun, by the way, but uh, went by the name Sister because that's what the soldiers called nurses, it took time to find a studio to back the deal. On top of an arduous studio schedule, Roz burnt the candle at both ends with charity fundraisers once the United States entered the war. She did benefit shows in Hollywood and in Washington. She hardly slept and ate little, and as a lifelong vegetarian, it's easy to become run down if you're not careful with nutrition. In 1943, in the middle of an overwhelming schedule, Roz gave birth to her beloved son, Lance. But one day in 1944, she couldn't get out of bed. Roz Russell had always been the picture of health, was never sick, and had an abundance of energy and resilience. She didn't understand why this was happening. Her doctor chalked it up to exhaustion. Medical experts knew very little at the time about postpartum depression. Women were encouraged to get back into the swing of things and not lose themselves to wallowing in bed. Like many successful women, Roz struggled at being fragile for the first time in her life. She didn't work in pictures for more than a year. In 1946, Roz finally convinced RKO to film Sister Kenny, even though they thought it would be a hard sell. Who wants to see a picture about a middle-aged nurse who tends to children sick with polio? That's what the front office suits had wondered. 
When Roz began working on Morning Becomes Electra, Travis Banton called to her home for a wardrobe discussion. At one point, after they had talked about fabric, he changed the subject. Hedda sent me, he said softly. Roz replied, oh, is that so? Travis went on. She feels very badly about that story she printed, because not only did you get the Sister Kenny picture made, but she found out you'd been ill. He didn't finish the sentence. Roz stared at the floor and held her silence. She didn't respond, didn't say a word. And then she returned to the subject of the costumes, noting that he shouldn't use taffeta on her petticoats because the fabric would rustle and make too much noise for the microphone. Banton stared at her, but he let the topic go. As she later taught her son, there are times when you shouldn't say anything. She would not forgive Hedda secondhand for the story. Hedda rang Rosalind and they were friends again. Hedda could be won over and fences mended with a nice chat over the phone or lunch or cocktails. Hedda did carry on feuds from the past once she was successful. Hedda never forgot how low she reached when, in that point in her acting career when she was forced to do her close-ups at the end of the day for Vogue's of 1938, produced by Walter Wanger, starring Joan Bennett. I told you about this in the last episode on Hedda, when she fainted in her dressing room and woke up alone, the studio dark and deserted. Unbilled, for low pay, playing Joan Bennett's mother, she must have been rocked to her core. Hedda had admired Joan's father, Richard Bennett, a Broadway legend. On the occasion of his 70th birthday in 1940, she included an item about Richard in her radio program. Hedda had just seen him at a film premiere for one of Joan's pictures. There he was wandering around aimless on the sidewalk, unable to even score a ticket to see his daughter on the screen. Hedda's jab at Joan paints the star as an ungrateful and neglectful daughter. When Joan was filming Father of the Bride playing Elizabeth Taylor's mother, Hedda rolled out a bitchy comment she had no doubt been saving for years. She wrote in her column that now, perhaps, Joan knows what it's like to have to do close-ups at the end of the day. Hedda's comment reminds Joan of her earlier ambivalence at the plate of an older actress and just how quickly time passes. Joan Bennett's response was so artful that it canceled out Hedda's side of the story. Joan Bennett sent a valentine to Hedda in 1950 that she would never forget. Joan sent order to the tune of $400. The headline rang, Could this be you, Hedda? And it set tongues wagging. In the ad, Joan included an item Hedda had printed that scolded Joan Fontaine for exhibitionism when she had been dancing at a New Year's Eve party. The ad also featured a Hearst columnist response, which argued that actresses were so sick of being targeted by Hedda that Hollywood had been keeping her off guest lists. Reports of the skunk Valentine appeared in the press. Hedda took it in stride. She was far more resilient about negative comments than Luella Parsons. 
had a wrote about the skunk. Yes, she received the skunk. It was beautifully behaved. She named it Joan. Then she sent it over to James and Pamela Mason as a companion for their cats. She was surprised the Wangers could afford the ads. I'm sure when this public spat occurred that Luella also took comfort to some degree in the fact that she was in the latest Billy Wilder picture along with uh, Hollywood stars while Joan was playing second fiddle to the world's most beautiful teenager and that ham-fisted bully Spencer Tracy. You could almost predict that if a star was attacked by Luella, Hedda would step in and defend her and vice versa. Hedda and Luella had their favorites, and they didn't really share. You were either with them or against them. Susan Hayward and Lana Turner were both favored by Luella, and both told Hedda to her face that they didn't like her when they were forced to meet. When Luella thought that Shelley Winters had made, made disparaging comments about Hollywood, the way other method actors from New York had done, Luella used her column to warn Shelley that she had better be grateful because she was a myth's nothing burger before she did Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon's A Double Life. Hedda went out of her way to promote Shelley after rumors swirled that she was difficult on set, as you heard in the clip from Hedda's radio show at the start of this episode. Shelley Winters took a shot at Luella, too, in her memoir, noting that Luella read her scripts so badly on her radio show that she and Farley Granger were in pain from suppressing their laughter when they made their guest appearances. Shelley noted that Luella placed emphasis on the wrong words, bungled lines, and left huge gaps between phrases that were impossible to follow. Hedda, though, was trained to read a script. She plays the straight man to Shelley's screwball in the radio skit. You can find it on YouTube. It's a tonic. I walked down the street with a stupid grin on my face as I listened. Perhaps the biggest perk of stardom, more so than the money and the wardrobe, is the ability to have your story on record. Your version of events is what matters or counts. In terms of legacy, it means everything. Hedda and Luella gave women in Hollywood a chance to tell their story, free from what the men in the studio said or what their fans had to say about it. Hedda had even fought for Harriet Parsons' daughter, or sorry, Luella Parsons' daughter, Harriet. For years, Harriet had worked three times as hard to prove that she was smart and capable, that she wasn't simply riding on her mother's mink coattails. After Harriet was hired as a producer in Republic Film Studio, they didn't really trust her to do what had been traditionally a man's job. When Harriet had a project ready to go in development in Republic, they took it away and assigned it to a man. Harriet walked out on the spot. In 1942, Harriet signed with RKO as a producer. After digging around in the archives, she found a script that excited her, which turned out to be The Enchanted Cottage. As soon as she started to get the ball rolling on the project, the front office took her off the project and assigned the picture to Dudley Nichols. Once again, the studio didn't trust a woman with a hot script. 
In her column, Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, she wrote, What gives at RKO with Harriet Parsons? The studio assigned her as a producer. She digs through its files and finds the Enchanted Cottage and arranges a deal with Sam Goldwyn to borrow Teresa Wright. Then it's snatched away and given to a big writer-producer. What's, what goes on? Harriet's clever, and I think this pretty shabby treatment, even for Hollywood. Thanks to Hedda's column, RKO returned the project to Harriet. Perhaps by way of thank you, Harriet later brokered the historic truce between her mother and Hedda and Romanoff's in April 1948. In the last episode on Hedda in Part 4, I told you about the time Hedda worked for Elizabeth Arden, which should have been a great fit for her since she was so enthusiastic about beauty culture. Unfortunately, the beauty industry turned out to be far more taxing than the film industry, so had to quit before it took a a permanent toll on her looks. Throughout her life, Hedda was keenly aware of her appearance, just like most film stars. She was a votary for glamour. As early as 1938 in her column, she chastised the film industry for killing glamour. It was a theme that she returned to throughout her career as a columnist. Hedda's son, Bill, recalled in an interview that Hedda, and he did call her Hedda, might look like the prisoner of Zenda behind her desk in her office, but then someone would pay a visit, and she would go into the bathroom, comb her hair, and put on one of her enormous hats, return to her desk, and greet the guest. Bill said the visitor would stare at her enthralled. She had presence. She had style. Bill mentioned another time when Hedda threw a cocktail party for Tallulah Bankhead. Everyone raved about a hostess gown had a war that had a bit of a train with it. Hedda told him later that it was something Adrian had made for her 20 years before. Clothes just didn't age on Hedda. She made everything look stylish no matter the current trends. Hedda felt that appearance was the first line of attack. She kept up a daily exercise regimen and watched her calorie intake. For years, she relied on the diet prescribed by Dr. Henry Beeler, the same dietitian that Gloria Swanson followed and discussed at length in her book, Swanson on Swanson. One of Hedda's cures was a vegetable soup broth, just like Gloria used when she was sick. Gypsy Rosalie noted that she and Hedda used to appear on the same game shows. Hedda, she said, would always tape two in one day. The reason for the double booking was it provided the best value. The appearances would pay $500 a show, so from the $1,000 she earned, Hedda would pay $100 to her favorite makeup artist, who used hooks and strings to lift her face under her hat, followed by a flattering makeup. After Hedda added a stylish dress and a few baubles, she was the picture of glamour, Gypsy recalled. Hedda had confided that she would love to have her face lifted, but she was too afraid she wouldn't like the result. Gypsy tried to persuade her to do it. And on her talk show in the 1960s, Gypsy talked openly about her facelifts and recommended them at a time when most women wouldn't dare admit they had had work done. The most frequent remarks about uh, Hedda that people had when they weren't calling her a bitch 
was about her vitality and her style. Once, Hedda's devotion to style became the source of blinding headaches. She had braced herself that she had brain cancer and went to a doctor, ready for the bad news. As she sat down and removed her hat, the doctor noticed a large hat pin sticking out. He asked Hedda if she always used the same hairpin. Hedda replied that she did. She kept it in the same spot to avoid making additional holes in the material. Plus, at that spot, the hat pin went through the thickest part of her hair. The doctor's test showed the hat pin had pricked and aggravated a nerve in her scalp, causing the headaches. The high point of Hedda's career came in 1947, perhaps, when she was celebrated in two profiles in the press. In January 1947, the Saturday Evening Post published an article by Collie Small under the headline, Gossip is Her Business. The author notes that when she was making $200,000 a year in her syndicated column, which then appeared in 110 newspapers, the author noted that Hedda was so feared in Hollywood that all it took to stop a producer from carrying on with a woman who wasn't his wife was for her to wag her finger at him from across the room. Studios feared negative reviews from Hedda. MGM had asked Hedda to go soft on her review of Marie Antoinette, and she did. She said it was only a small flop. Had a staff of five had trouble keeping up with her, Treva Davidson, her secretary, struggled to type as fast as Hedda had dictated, which Collie Small observed in the article was about as quick as a schoolboy reciting the Gettysburg Address on the roof of a building on fire. The article also reported the legend about a Hollywood sobriety test. If a reveler could properly recite, Hedda Hopper has a horde of hooded hats, a horde of hooded hats has Hedda Hopper, they were only mildly inebriated. In July 1947, Hedda appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Hedda was the only Hollywood columnist to receive the honor. What's most notable about the cover is the artwork by Boris Chalyapin, who creates a modern dynamic persona in his illustration. It's a magnificent portrait of Hedda wearing an elaborate hat made from a typewriter, a microphone, and telephone embellished with egret feathers. In the image, Hedda dominates three instruments of media. She looks so glamorous and powerful. No wonder Luella took to her bed for days after it hit newsstands. The press coverage no doubt emboldened Hedda's political moves later in the year, when the congressional hearings began to investigate the communist presence in Hollywood. I'll get to that in a moment. My favorite story in Hedda's second memoir, and by far her best moment, is when she talks about what Louis B. Mayer planned to do to Ida Coverman. He would have gotten away with it too, if not for Hedda's intervention. Bosley Crowther, the New York Times film critic, who made more boneheaded calls than any other critic of his generation, wrote a history of MGM, which he published in 1957, the year that Mayer died. Crowther had mentioned Ida Coverman in three brief sentences, that she had an uncanny political sense, 
uncanny meaning she was a woman. Crowther gave Ida credit for discovering Nelson Eddy. And then he mentions that Coverman tried to patch a rift between Jeanette McDonald and Mayer by telling the singer to make peace with him. When Hedda published her second memoir in 1963 and told Ida Coverman's story, no one else was talking about the woman who did more than most to build MGM's legacy. Hedda's book made sure Ida wasn't forgotten in the annals of Hollywood history. And a recent book dedicated to Ida Coverman does a great service to restoring her role in studio history. Ida Coverman, who was known as Kay to her friends, transformed Mayer from a merchant to a film mogul. She had more authority than anyone else in Metro, aside from Mayer and Irving Thalberg. Ida arrived in California to join Herbert Hoover's presidential campaign. She was part of a grassroots program to get votes from women. Because of women like Ida, other women turned out to the polls and swung the vote to Hoover. As an active member of the Republican Party in California, Mayer met Ida during the campaign and pressed for an introduction to Hoover. Mayer had dreamed about a political appointmentship, like being an ambassador or something, that would extend his power from outside the studio. Once the election was over, Mayer lured Ida away from politics to be his executive assistant. Ida became Mayer's gatekeeper in 1928. She had a knack for knowing who and what he needed before he did, or just at the right time, which is often the case for executive assistants. Ida sorted the pressing matters from the trivial. After she settled in, she proved a dab hand at discovering talent for the studio. She discovered Nelson Eddy, Robert Taylor, and Judy Garland, among other stars. Also, she applied the insider knowledge and experience that she learned on the campaign trail to build Mayer's standing in the film colony. It was Ida who taught him the principles of public speaking. She wrote or edited his speeches, then watched him in practice. During office rehearsals and when he delivered speeches in the studio at galas or banquets, one look or signal from Ida and Mayer would react instantly, readjusting his delivery. Hedda points out that Ida Coverman started an MGM at $250 a week, and she was still making the same salary over 20 years later. Not only was Ida passed over for salary rises, she was also excluded from the list of studio executives who were put on a pension. Ida's decades of unwavering dedication, which added to the studio's reputation as the gold standard of Hollywood film production, was completely devalued and overlooked. At some point, Hedda notes, Mayer turned on Ida, just like he had many others before her. Hedda theorizes that his reversal could be attributed to how important she was in the studio and how much he resented her indispensable position. Anyone who failed with Mayer knew they had another shot by making an appeal to Ida Coverman. She was a stabilizing motherly presence to stars like Judy Garland, Lana Turner, and Robert Taylor. 
Like many indispensable women, Ida didn't rock the boat and demand to be treated as she deserved. Things changed suddenly, though, overnight, as they often do, when Ida suffered a stroke in the late 1940s. Suddenly, she was overwhelmed with medical bills, and the effort required to recover and get well. Mayer took her off salary. It got so bad for Ida that she had to sell her car to pay her bills. Hedda visited to see what she could do to help. Ida had chastised herself for not saving for her old age. But as Hedda pointed out, that wasn't easy to do on her salary. Ida had turned down an offer from Howard Hughes to be his executive assistant, and it would have given her three times the salary she made with Mayer. But Ida was loyal to a man who didn't deserve it. After her stroke, when she couldn't work and was off salary, Ida had been prepared to sell the grand piano she had in the modest house that she rented. Playing that piano was one of her greatest pleasures. The movers were in the house and nearly out the door when she changed her mind. Hedda told Mayer that he had to put her back on salary. Howard Strickling rang Hedda to float Mayer's solution past her. Ida should go to the motion picture country home. Hedda roared into the phone that if Mayer did that, she would personally make sure that he was sorry he was ever And Hedda went to Dory Sherry, who had just taken over Mayer's position as head of the studio. Sherry was happy to have Ida by his side. Her wealth of knowledge about MGM was priceless, and because he was also scared of Hedda. Ida still had mobility issues and used a cane around the studio, but a crowd met her for her first day back and cheered. She was far more beloved than Mayer had ever been. Hedda visited Ida on her last Christmas on Earth. She brought Ida a check. She asked what Mayer had sent. Ida replied, go and see for yourself. It's in a shoebox under the tree. Mayer had sent a batch of homemade cookies. Let's turn to the elephant in the room, Hedda's politics. She was a flag-waving conservative who preached God and country. For Hedda, American values meant individual rights and liberty over the collective. It meant America first, small government, and low taxes. Before the Second World War, Hedda was part of the isolationist camp, which held that a war overseas would drain American resources. But her opinion changed in January 1940, when Burton K. Wheeler, a Democratic senator from Montana, lashed out at Hollywood for warmongering propaganda. In 1941, he made a motion for hearings to investigate Hollywood's interference in national politics. Hedda Hopper disagreed with a senator in her column. She asked, The claim seems to be that the screen is being used for propaganda war pictures. Well, what's Hollywood to do? Close its eyes to the war with its news on every page? When America entered the war and actors in Hollywood enlisted, she took an uncharacteristic defense of Lou Ayers when he took a highly unpopular stance as a conscientious objector. He was denounced in Hollywood, in the press, and by fans at the box office. 
Mayer spent $100,000 to recast and reshoot the last Dr. Kildare picture Ayers made with a new actor. Hedda was steadfast in her support of Ayers' civil rights and in his personal conduct, and not just because she had played his mother on screen. Hedda received praise from, from some unlikely corners for her protection of Ayers' character, The New Yorker cartoonist James Thurber wrote to Hedda, you've won the admiration of a free-thinking American public. In 1944, Hedda Hopper was a founding member of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, known as the MPA. Other founding members included John Wayne, Cecil B. DeMille, Walt Disney, and Robert Taylor. The MPA's mission statement stood firm against the influence of communism in the American film industry. MPA membership grew to include Barbara Stanwyck, Irene Dunn, Ginger Rogers, Leo McCary, Clark Gable, Cedric Gibbons, Bob Montgomery, Adolf Manjou, Clarence Brown, Walter Brennan, King Vidor, Sam Wood, and Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand wrote a pamphlet that described the communist agenda to infect non-political movies with bits of propaganda. Rand's pamphlet cautioned that Hollywood should not smear the wealthy, industrialists, or bankers, or the profit motive, and the collective or common man should not be glorified. In October 1947, Congress initiated a series of hearings under the House Un-American Activities Committee to investigate the extent of communist influence in Hollywood. Friendly witnesses who testified and named names include Gary Cooper, Bob Taylor, Bob Montgomery, Adolf Manjou, Ron Reagan, Louis B. Mayer, and Jack Warner. Hedda latched onto the hearings as an opportunity to denounce the pro-red sentiment she saw in pictures such as Mission to Moscow, North Star, and Song of Russia. Although the pro-Russia sentiment in all three studio films were a political expedient during the Second World War, Hedda viewed the pictures as a dangerous precedent which allowed Reds to establish inroads into the American film industry. The idea that Jack Warner, Sam Goldwyn, and Louis Mayer would make seditious films or play stooge for communism was preposterous to many in Hollywood, but Hedda didn't see it that way. HUAC listed 19 witnesses unfriendly because they refused to answer questions about their membership in the Communist Party, or they had failed to name names, or they had failed to appear. Bertolt Brecht testified, then left the country. From that list, most were screenwriters. Congress narrowed down the list, which created the Hollywood Ten. The list included Dalton Trumbo, Ring Lardner Jr., John Howard Lawson, Herbert Bieberman, Edward Dimitrik, Albert Maltz, Lester Cole, Adrian Scott, Alva Bessie, and Samuel Ornitz. In response to the hearings and the creation of the Hollywood 10, film colony members formed the Committee for the First Amendment. The CFA contingent flew to Washington to protest the hearings on October 27, 1947. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, John Huston and Evelyn Keyes, William Wyler, Danny Kay, June Havoc, Marsha Hunt, Geraldine Brooks, and Jane Wyatt 
were among the stars who turned out to support the civil rights of the Hollywood tent. During this time, Hedda printed a series of letters from her readers, many of whom called for a boycott of Hollywood pictures, featuring either the Hollywood 10 or the members of the CFA. She endorsed the boycott. Testimonials from readers reported networks of extended families and friends who then employed a checklist of pictures, ensuring that before a trip to the cinema, They investigated the political leanings of the director, writer, and stars to make sure they weren't read. Film fans congratulated Hedda for her Americanism and asked her to continue to hunt down Reds in Hollywood. Hedda announced a tour in her column, which took her as far as Kansas City, stopping in at the women's auxiliary branches of the American Legion. In all, she appeared before 6,000 women, asking them to hold the line against Reds at the box office. Hedda wrote to J. Edgar Hoover, asking for information about communist members in Hollywood. She wanted his intelligence gathering for use in her column. The head G-man sent her a file with clippings, but they were from public sources rather than his agents. Hoover did plant items with with Hedda, along with other columnists, Luella and Walter Winchell, when it suited him. Hedda authorized a film boycott and argued that executives should purge Reds from their studio lists. She printed names in her columns and over the years used a technique to call someone a Red without overtly doing so. She might have an item on the Hollywood Reds, and then imply guilt by association with only a paragraph break between her editorial against the communist infiltrators and the mention of a name she wanted to smear in proximity. In November 1947, studio executives held a conference with studio investors in the Waldorf Astoria in New York to craft a unified response to the Hollywood 10. Their biggest concern was that the boycotts would spread and result in a loss of ticket sales. The executives prepared a statement which read that communists or any member of a group that plotted to overthrow the U.S. government would be taken off salary and have their contracts canceled. In the future, the studios would refuse to hire anyone with ties to the Communist Party. The blacklist was born. In 1948, the Hollywood Ten were held in contempt by HUAC and sentenced to prison terms. Is it any wonder that 1948 witnessed the worst years in ticket sales since the the Depression began? Between the Red Scare boycotts and the rise of television, the film industry was hit hard, and Hedda helped bite the hand that fed her. When Hedda wrote in her column that HUAC had been covering up for known sympathizers and communists, suggesting collusion between the moguls and the politicians, she received a sharp reprimand to cite her evidence or shut her mouth. Hedda let it drop. She continued to name names in her column. She ignored an editor who told her to remember that she was a film columnist, not a political columnist. Readers during this time sent her tips from all over the country, which contained proof of who was soft on Reds in Hollywood. One letter came from RKO, offering proof of Reds and sympathizers on the studio, sent by assigned self-proclaimed 50 loyal Americans on the lot. 
Longtime friends Francis Marion and Gypsy Rose Lee, among others, did not share Hedda's politics, so they simply didn't talk about them. And Hedda, for her part, didn't try to convince them otherwise or convert them to her brand of Americanism. Hedda was a woman of contradictions. She would pounce on any man in public or on the page who treated women shabbily. She fought for women against the studio system, and yet she embraced a political worldview that that defined women solely in terms of their domestic role. After reading so much about her for the series, it seems likely that she latched on to anti-communist politics for the power as a way to stay relevant or keep herself in print. The fear of the wolf at the door never left her of being alone and impoverished in the world. If she joined the Cold War crusade, she might be safe. Hedda's politics and her brand of Americanism extended to fashion. When Dior's new look premiered after the war, she rankled at the odd combination of padding and corsetry. She labeled it the Battle of the Bulge all over again, only this time it was the fashion battle lines. Hedda argued in her column that all the stylish women would take their cues from Adrian rather than the Paris catwalks. Hedda led the charge against a variety of topics related to fashion in her column and on air. Capri pants were at the top of her list, and point-toe shoes, they were red rag to the bull. In her second memoir, Hedda wrote that the man who invented capri pants had his mind on rape. She mentions capri pants in one chapter where she describes the, the decline of glamour from the studio era. Hedda wrote about accosting a woman on the street one day. The woman wore very tight capri pants that, in Hedda's view, left nothing to the imagination. Added to this obscenity, as she saw it, was a rumpled sweater, matted hair, too much makeup, and a general sloppy demeanor. While so attired, the woman smoked a cigarette and pushed a baby carriage. Hedda stormed up to the woman and declared, You're disgusting. In 1951, Hedda Hopper sponsored a Japanese student on a work-study program. Tanamichi Soma wrote a book about his experience as Hedda Hopper's houseboy. After he arrived, Mishi, he was met at Hedda's house on Tropical Avenue by Dima Harshbarger, Hedda's business manager and friend. Dima gave Mishi a contract to sign. It stipulated that he could be dismissed at any time, But if his work proved acceptable, he was not allowed to break his contract for a duration of four years. The contract said Hedda would pay his school fees and give Mishi $50 a month plus room and board. He soon found out that the cost of his airfare was to be deducted from his salary, so in the end, Mishi received only $30 a month. He received two Sundays off a month. That was it. And in his third year, he took his first holiday, where he spent two weeks traveling in California. Mishi took Hedda's breakfast tray up to her every morning at 7 o'clock. She had half a boiled egg, a slice of toast, and coffee with the papers. Mishi's duties were to lighten the burden from Hedda's elderly cook and housekeeper, Maud. Mishi noted that in addition to running errands, cleaning the home, and whatnot, 
Mishi opened the door each day or each afternoon at four o'clock for stars who arrived to sit in the den for drinks and an interview with the Gossip Queen. Hedda had a secretary on hand to record and make notes while um, she could create a bank of material for a column that she could publish later in the year. Hedda always had stories in the pipeline to meet her relentless deadlines. Mishi served drinks and emptied ashtrays. He also worked as part of the big Hollywood parties that Hedda hosted. Mishi describes his first party in Hedda's home, where he had the challenging task of taking the ladies' coats. One of the bartenders had warned him that to be careful because ladies often rented their coats, and by the end of an evening, it wasn't unusual for them to forget what they were wearing. So Mishi devised a system to remember the coats of 20 different women. It's pretty funny. Hedda began working on her first memoir in 1950. It was published in 1952. It became a bestseller after the first week. During a nationwide book tour, Hedda appeared for signings and also lecture appearances, which netted her $1,500 each. The New York Times called her book a conversation piece. Other reviews said it was the longest gossip column possible. Cecil B. DeMille wrote a review praising Hedda's book for its candor, humor, generosity, and tolerance. The following year, in 1953, before she launched a book tour in London, Hedda had a hysterectomy. As a side note, it's worth mentioning that Mishi recalled the time Hedda had an operation for woman's troubles. She had promised a teenage girl, a daughter of a New York business associate, that she would host a star-studded party in her Hollywood home with a teenager as the guest of honor. Hedda explained to Mishi and Maud, the cook, that the party would simply have to go on without her while she was in hospital. With adults, you could cancel, she said, but you couldn't do that to a girl, not a girl who has her heart set on it. Hedda recovered in time to make the trip to London in 1953. 800 guests attended a luncheon there for Hedda. One wag, Donald Zeck, described her thusly. Take one black widow spider, cross it with a scorpion, wean their poisonous offspring on prussic acid and treacle, and you'll get the honeyed sting of Hedda Hopper. Talk about a love letter. As the 1950s wore on, gossip coverage changed once the publicity departments lost their power to protect stars as the studio system declined. The most notorious among the new generation of film reporting, Confidential Magazine, set their sights on Hedda Hopper. For six months, they investigated Hedda. You can imagine how a juicy story about the queen of gossip would have just flown off the newsstands. Confidential came up empty, though. Hedda crowed at their lack of dirt. She wrote, after work, I come home, cream my face, and get into bed with a book. Throughout her radio, newspaper, and television career, Hedda had been protected from libel suits by Dima Harshbarger, Speck McClure, and other editorial assistants, legmen, and lawyers, That is, until she published her second memoir, The Whole Truth and Nothing But, in 1963. Hedda wanted it to be juicy, not a tame rehash of old material. 
She may have roared against lax moral standards in Hollywood and the nation, yet she was also keenly aware that she had to meet the public expectations for frank material in the wake of more salacious coverage. Ori Kelly, the Oscar-winning designer and friend, told Hedda that she should stir things up and sensationalize the book. He told her, don't be a fart in a hat box, Hedda. Go out and scare them. Nobody paid any attention to you until you started attacking people. Speck McClure, her right-hand man from the 1930s, read the book and advised Hedda to take out an item that would surely lead to a lawsuit. Hedda went ahead and included the story anyway. It was a story that claimed she told Elizabeth Taylor not to marry Michael Wilding, not only because he was too old for her, but because he had carried on an affair with Stuart Granger. Elizabeth denied the accusation and protested that she was in love with him. I don't think Hedda ever understood the way Elizabeth always risked everything for some man over and over again. As Speck had predicted, Michael Wilding sued Hedda for $2 million. The case was eventually settled for $100,000. Hedda and her publisher each paid half. Hedda was so used to winning that she was gutted when she finally lost. She took comfort, perhaps, in the fact that her rival, Luella Parsons, lost her morning column in 1962 and retired in 1965. But Hedda really wasn't around that long to enjoy it. She contracted double pneumonia and died in hospital in 1966. She was 80 years old. Hedda's legacy is indelible in film and celebrity journalism. She has been portrayed in television and film by herself, Jane Alexander, Cynthia Adler, Catherine Helmond, Holland Taylor, Fiona Shaw, Helen Mirren, Tilda Swinton, and Judy Davis, among others. Even if people don't remember her name, they know her character's imprint, the tall, stylish dame under a big hat who is the biggest bitch in town. Thanks for listening to the series. Why not leave a nice review on iTunes or recommend it if you've enjoyed it? The following books helped me to write the podcast episode series on Luella and Hedda. Hedda and Luella, the dual biography of Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons by George Eels, published in 1972. The Gay Illiterate by Luella Parsons, from 1943. Tell It to Luella by Luella Parsons, published in 1962. First Lady of Hollywood, a biography of Luella Parsons by Samantha Barbas, published in 2005. From Under My Hat by Hedda Hopper, published in 1952, The Whole Truth and Nothing But the Truth, by Hedda Hopper from 1963. Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, Celebrity Gossip and American Conservatism, by Jennifer Frost from 19, uh, or sorry, 2011. Off With Their Heads, A Serio-Comic Tale of Hollywood, by Frances Marion, published in 1972. She damn near ran the studio, the Extraordinary Lives of Ida R. Coverman by Jacqueline Braitman, published in 2020. Marion Davies, a biography by Fred Lawrence Giles from 1973. Mishi, Hedda Hopper's Houseboy by Tanamichi Soma from 2002. 
Vanity Will Get You Somewhere by Joseph Cotton, published in 1987. War Paint, Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, Their Lives, Their Times, Their Rivalry by Lindy Woodhead, published in 2003. Life is a Banquet by Rosalind Russell with Chris Chase from 1977. A Portrait of Joan, the Autobiography of Joan Crawford by Joan Crawford with Jane Kesner from 1962. The Bennets, an Acting Family by Brian Kello, published in 2004. Shelley, also known as Shirley, published in 1980 by Shelley Winters. The Lion's Share, the story of an entertainment empire by Bosley Crowther from 1957. Thanks again. Join me for episode 84 next time when I talk about Joan Crawford and Daisy Kenyon.